Proverbs chapter 4 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 as we begin our time together, and we'll be moving from there because we've been on the back half of our series where we are considering themes that occur throughout the beginning speeches of Proverbs but repeat themselves time and time again in chapters 10 through 31, which give us a picture of how to live wisely in a broken world. What does living wise lives in a broken world look like? What does the life lived by faith in in Christ look like? Proverbs is a book about the Christian life. Certainly, it anticipates Jesus, the wisest man to walk on earth, and paints a picture of the life that he would win for us through his own life, death, and resurrection. We see in the wise son the anticipation of a glorious son from heaven who would always heed his father's instruction and show wisdom in his devotion to the path of righteousness. We also see the path that we would walk if we would follow our Savior and live wisely in the world that has been broken by sin and folly. We see the path of hope for our own lives that have been broken by sin and folly, but are being restored by the Lord who works through the power of His Holy Spirit. And today, we come to the subject of life and death. As one pastor noted, we refer to situations or circumstances as being a matter of life and death. We're declaring that whatever circumstance or situation lies before us is of ultimate importance. It's a matter of life and death. And Proverbs is filled with contrasting statements that describe the difference between life and death. And for the sage, getting wisdom from God is a matter of life and death. So follow along as I read Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 9 to begin our time. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be familiar with the name or the person, Johnny Erickson Tata. She is a Christian artist and author who recently penned a devotion containing 25 hymns and devotions for sufferers and weary souls. It was a great joy to me when I ordered the book last week to see it's already on back order on Amazon and it's not even being released yet or it's just been released. Now, if you aren't familiar with Johnny, she suffered a catastrophic injury in a diving accident when she was a teenager that's left her a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, unable to walk or use her hands. She has since lived for more than five decades in a wheelchair and ministered to thousands through her art 
which she draws and paints by using a pen or a paintbrush with her teeth. She has authored many books written to encourage those with lifelong pain and suffering. She continues to be a shining advocate for those in the disabled community, people who often, frankly, get overlooked by the world and sadly even the church. And in a recent interview about her new book, she spoke of how in the early days of her injury, the waves of sorrow, fear, pain, and anguish crashed against her soul every day. But it was hymns that she had learned throughout childhood, packed with scripture and truth that became a ballast for her in the midst of her storm of suffering. At one point in the interview, she recounted being alone in a hospital room in the dark. She couldn't move. All she could think to do was to sing her sorrows to the Lord through the hymns that she had memorized as a child. Hymns of suffering Christians that had penned these words throughout church history. But what struck me as I listened to her talk about life for 55 years in a wheelchair was the effusive life and joy that came out of her as she spoke. It testifies to a key truth that the Proverbs give us about life and death, and it's where I want you to start with me this morning, because Proverbs teaches us this, life is more than having a heartbeat, and death is more than the absence of one. Let me repeat that for you this morning, because if you miss this, the rest of everything I'm going to say is useless to you. Life is more than having a heartbeat, and death is more than the absence of one. Life, that is the true life that God gives, can break forth into the darkness of our death, and death, if we are not on guard, can creep into our lives, spreading its dark tendrils into nearly every aspect. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, is helpful when he writes about the concerning, about the meaning of death in Proverbs. He says this, the Old Testament looks at the subject in depth. Death is a whole realm in conflict with life rather than a single and merely physical event. If we think of physical death as the center of this realm, there is a far side wrapped in mystery yet open to God, expressed in the terms Sheol, Abaddon, etc., and pictured as the deep abode of the dead. But there is also a near side. Death throws its shadow over the living in forms of sickness, calamity, and above all, sin. So from the get-go, what he's saying and what we need to understand is that the Proverbs speak of life and death. It is most common that they speak to something that is more than just a physical reality. That is not to say that that the Proverbs don't address physical life and physical death. On a basic level, we've seen it over and over. If you walk in the path of the wicked, it's likely that your days on earth will be short. It is also likely that if you embrace the wisdom of God, your days on earth are lengthened or likely to be lengthened. Though we know that that's not all the case, we've seen sweet saints die far too young and old villains live way too long. But the deed-consequence relationship of Proverbs gives us the picture of that which is common. But far more often, 
than physical realities. The Proverbs speak of life and death beyond the realm of the physical. Let me show you an example from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. The father is warning the son about staying on the right path and not falling into wicked company. He offers protection that living wisely gives when he says in Proverbs 2, beginning in verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Do you notice how in these verses, death is not simply dying? but going down a path to the departed, which the path of life cannot be regained from? If he, if he was just speaking about physical death, he wouldn't speak in this way. Instead, what the author is saying is there's a fate worse than death. It's to be cast away from the Lord, to cast away the covenant that he offers through sin. Death, as Kittner said, is casting its shadow in the temptation to abandon fearing the Lord and to embrace the fleeting and temporary pleasures of sin. But likewise, life points beyond physical existence as well. Consider Proverbs 14.32, the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge where? In his death. Do you see what's going on there, particularly for the righteous? There's the plain acknowledgement of physical death in that proverb. Yet the righteous one has found a refuge, even as he dies. There's an inescapable confidence that the righteous one has in the face of his own death. As those on this side of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we know that this proverb is pointing forward because we are living in light of it. The new covenant and the fulfilled promise of a Savior who would come and save us from eternal death and grant us eternal life so that we, when we die, we don't fear a second death, but we find refuge even as we die because we know physical death is a doorway to eternal life. The practical the Proverbs reinforce this, this reality over and over again while remaining focused on our practical everyday interactions. The sages, sages beckon us to live every day with an eye towards eternity. To live, really live as those who rest in the fear and the love of God who reigns over all. So the questions before us are twofold and they'll frame the rest of our time together. We'll spend the majority on the first. Two questions. Where can we find life? How do we avoid death? Where can we find life? How do we avoid death? Now, before I even answer the first question, first, where can we find life? I want to argue that you're actually asking the question. I think you're asking it every day. Because what use is it to answer a question that nobody's asking? If I walk up to you after the service and say, I want to show you the nearest entrance to the Appalachian Trail. Here's some instructions about how to successfully navigate the journey. And you've never told me that you like hiking. You're not asking the question about how to get to the Appalachian Trail or how you can do it. And I don't know if it's Appalachian or Appalachian. You can correct me after. I just, it's just an illustration. The information would not be useful to you. It wouldn't even be wanted. It wouldn't be beneficial. So I want to argue this. I want to argue that every one of us, youngest to oldest in this room, is actually asking the question, where can I find life? Every one of us is daily asking something or someone to give us life. 
We are, we are life seekers, but we are so prone to find it in temporary places. So here's what I mean. Do we look to experiences? Maybe we're building our life around the next experience, whether it's your next vacation, your next family outing, the next major calendar item, dinner out, baseball game, or school dance, fill in the blank. We look for life, some of us, in the next thing we're going to do. Thinking to ourselves, if I, I can get through today because this is on my calendar tomorrow or next week or next year or next month. This thing in the future will give me joy. It'll give me purpose. It'll give me vitality. It'll give me meaning. What about our children? Some of us build our lives around our children. Investing them as best we can, educating and disciplining and discipling them, giving them all the things that we felt like we missed out on, seeking to lovingly direct them and to love them and love them well all of our days with them, taking our own self-worth and happiness and their successes. And when people tell us, man, kids are great, we are satisfied. It feels so good. We believe that if we do enough right by them, they're going to turn out to be wholesome, God-fearing examples of righteousness that we can look at and be satisfied with what we have achieved. Life fulfilled. What about your marriage? Or the hope of marriage? We invest in our spouses and love them. We seek to serve them and receive love for them. We measure our happiness and joy by how well our marriage is. And we feel alive because we're doing life together with someone as spectacular as them. Carrie tells me this all the time. She's not here. So <laughs> we can feel alive because marriage is providing some sense of life or satisfaction or joy to us. I mean, can, we can go on, right? Financial security, the next purchase from Amazon, the next promotion in the workplace, the next holiday or birthday to celebrate, the next milestone in a relationship, graduation from school and college, even lunch. We can look to all things to give us some sense of life. We are hardwired life seekers because we were made to live. God created humanity to experience life. But when we live our lives only horizontally, we never experience real, lasting life. We were never meant to think of life as, mean, as only being here and now, rooted in here and now, but we were to think of life as being rooted in the God who gives life and breath and everything to his image-bearing creatures. So the question might not be rolling off your lips this morning. Where will I seek life today? And yet, I'm willing to bet that at the core of your being, whether you're aware of it or not, you're asking and answering the question somehow. And the sages of Proverbs want you to know where you can go to find real life for your everyday here on earth and for eternity that is beyond this physical life. And I want to show you this through two repeated images that they give. We'll look at a few examples, a couple examples. Trees and fountains. Trees and and fountains. Listen to Proverbs 3.18. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. She, in this verse, is Lady Wisdom, whom we met frequently in the early chapters of Proverbs, who calls out to the simple to turn from their simple ways and do what? Live. 
And here in this wisdom speech, the assurance is given to us is that we lay hold of wisdom. We're laying hold of a tree of life. That imagery is not accidental. You recall there was a tree of life we've heard about before in Scripture, in the Garden of Eden, planted by God himself. We know the sad reality that Adam and Eve were barred from the garden after they sinned against the Lord and barred specifically from eating from the tree of life, lest they live forever. Part of the judgment of God was being banned from eating the fruit of the tree of life. Yet here is an invitation to a tree of life. To hold fast to a tree of life. We're not barred from it. We're invited to come and lay hold of it. That is to possess it. The picture helps us grasp the underlying reality that we find life when we lay hold of God, His wisdom, His instruction, His teaching, His words. We are looking for life. We are constantly listening to words. But beloved, what is it that we find ourselves listening to most? Are the loudest voices in our lives those that point us to find satisfaction in the here and now? Or is the loudest voice in our lives the voice of our God? Now, I'm not an arborist. I've cut down only a few trees in my day. But I've always loved when a large tree is felled and you can look at the rings in the stump. And you count the ages that this tree has weathered. You know the process of counting the rings of the tree representing the life and Seasons of that tree's existence, the picture of life withstanding years of change until the axe was laid to the tree. But here, a tree is held out that cannot be cut down, that actually is life in itself. There's no saw of man and no acts of Satan because this tree grows from the life-giving wisdom of God. So you and I can find life by clinging to God and his wisdom revealed in his word. And we find that the word of God forms us and shapes us and causes us to grow because our lives become rooted in heavenly wisdom, not earthly fads. So beloved, if you want to find life, open your Bible. Open the scriptures, read your Bible, and don't stop. And you will be laying hold of God's wisdom, a tree of life for you. But it's not a Bible reading program. That's not the only thing I'm trying to encourage you to do here. I don't want you to simply open your Bibles and not stop so that you get a lot of interesting data and facts. No, because in reading God's word, we see in the Proverbs is devoting ourselves to him. And when we read his word, we encounter God himself. To read the Bible simply to check off your to-do list or to try to become more spiritually smart is to fall into the trap of the Pharisees who knew God's word. They knew it wonderfully but had no love for the God who gave it. Remember what Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. When the sage tells us to lay hold of wisdom, the tree of life, he's saying no less than what Jesus says, go to the scriptures, be in them, but not for mere knowledge of the scriptures. Go to the scriptures to encounter the God of all wisdom who gives life freely to those who come to him by faith. But he also uses this, tree imagery 
in another way. Proverbs 11, verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. I wonder if you see what's happening in that proverb. The one who has laid hold of wisdom, the wisdom of God, who has chosen the path of wisdom, is receiving life, but is also giving life. Listen how Dwayne Garrett, the Old Testament scholar, articulates this. The metaphor of the fruit of the righteous being a tree of life is striking, as the seed of one fruit can give rise to a tree and thus much more fruit. So also the beneficial repercussions of a righteous life are far-reaching. So so finding life in God's wisdom and in God himself and finding the God of all wisdom and then applying that to your life by living according to God's instruction actually extends life beyond yourself. Church, this is is the amazing reality that we who are renewed by God's spirit, renewed by his word, we become conduits of life extending beyond ourselves. So not not only do we experience life, we become life givers to others as it overflows from us, as the life of God, the tree of life grows in us, the supernatural life flourishes in us. We are giving life to others just as the tree bears fruit and that fruit contains seed that is planted to multiply. So life, The life of wisdom is the seed that the Lord is scattering throughout a world to push back the darkness of death. And this is our privilege. So yes, we look for life and we find it in God. And then in the glorious wonder, the Lord uses us to spread his knowledge, his fame. And yes, the very same life that we enjoy, we give to others who do not yet know it. I mean, two really practical ways we see this. Sharing the gospel with others who don't know it, and giving in evangelism. And then also in giving the gospel to each other in a local church. In this way, we are spreading the fruit of God's life to those who have never tasted it and to those who have appetites that are trained to love it. It's a beautiful picture of finding and giving life. But there's another image of life in Proverbs. The second image is fountains. So listen to Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Now, we've visited the meaning of the fear of the Lord multiple times, so I'll just remind you this is not a fear that means terror, but a fear of reverence and awe, that God is no man-made or man-controlled being, but is the creator who made all that there is, owns all that there is, and rules all that there is, including us. And fearing the Lord in Proverbs, is the response of one who knows the Lord. It's, it's a, it is the reaction, not of one who runs from God in Proverbs. That's the action of fools. No, fearing the Lord in Proverbs is the one who knows the Lord, believes Him, trusts Him, and is in a relationship with Him. Nothing in the tone of Proverbs would lead us to think that God wants you and me to grovel and scream in terror in his presence. No, the picture is that the fear of Yahweh is life-giving. It is the reverent awe of God who made us, who loved us and redeemed us. But the question is, well, how do we find life in fearing the Lord? Well, I want to give you the answer by portraying the opposite. Play a game of opposites here. By telling you what not fearing the Lord looks like. To not fear the Lord is to hear his wisdom and respond with, that's dumb. That's foolish. To not fear the Lord is to embrace the very opposite of his revealed will for our lives. So to make it more contextual to Proverbs, not fearing the Lord means you lean in when people entice you to sin. Or your heart leads you to sin. You lean on that. 
To not fear the Lord is to see Lady Folly and say, the pleasure you offer is far better than anything God will give. To not fear the Lord is to respond to every offense someone gives harshly, to be impulsive, to be easily angered, to be a swindler of others and an unjust person who values profit over people. To reject fearing the Lord is to take every wise saying of Proverbs in effect, say, no, thank you. I'll live life on my own terms. That is to leap headlong into what the sage is calling the snares of death. But to fear the Lord, to hear him, to heed him, is to possess a fountain of life. Most of us know the experience of being parched deep in thirst and to get to a water fountain and the stream of satisfying water as it quenches your thirst. What a What a gift of that sensation, that feeling. But the picture here is that the one who fears the Lord actually has within them a fountain of life. Remember somewhere else in the Bible where a teacher alluded to a fountain bubbling up inside of us? Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Friends, what, what the sage speaks of in part, we see in full in Christ, Jesus our Lord. The fear of the Lord was shorthand for being in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And here is Jesus is saying, sitting by well, he says, I have better water than what you're looking at. He's fulfilling this picture from Proverbs. We can have living water flowing up in us, a fountain of life that is given to us when we come to Jesus by faith. Who is wiser than the Son of God? No one. And he gives us living water. How? Because he gives us himself. That is real life. That is where real life is found, not in job or pleasure or experience or relationship. No, all of those life substitutes will fail you. There's only one place for us to find life, and that is in Christ. And friends, here's the good news. He offers it to everyone who comes in by faith. He's not holding out on you. We ask the sages of Proverbs, tell us where we can find life, and they tell you, in the Lord, go to him. And we on this side of the cross and the resurrection can say, it's in Christ. Go to him. But then we turn and ask, How can we avoid death? Second question. And to be honest, the answer from a purely physical sense is you can't. You won't. No one can. Death has a very high success rate with us, right? From a place of the physical world, we will all taste death unless the Lord Jesus returns for us prior to. But the The wisdom of Proverbs leads us on a path that avoids a death here and now and a greater death, an eternal death. Sure, as we saw a few moments ago, there are reckless activities that can lead us to a shorter life. If you traffic with murderers, thieves, and forbidden immorality, you're not not avoiding death. You're inviting it to come near. But remember, we have learned in Proverbs, wisdom for life and death is beyond a heartbeat and breath in your lungs which means that there is a death far worse than physically dying. Listen to how Ray Ortland articulates this. He says, 
we sinners stray into the territory of death every day. But in the book of Proverbs, God is counseling us, alerting us to where death lurks. When the sage warns his son against sexual sin, for example, he says the dead are there. There is a hell before hell. But there is also a heaven before heaven. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. You see, as we lay hold of the tree of life, laying hold of God by faith, we do so in a world where death is still encroaching on our lives, tempting us, threatening us, demanding that we give it attention. Death comes promising life through idolatry. All we need to do, all you have to do, just exchange the true God for a lie. All you need to do is just set aside the wisdom of God and embrace the ways of the wicked. Embrace whatever you feel. This is why God so so strongly warns us through the sages to avoid the paths of the wicked, the ways of the foolish, and avoid the snares of death. And I think we see this primarily in two ways in Proverbs. How can we avoid death? We train our ears. So if you've got your Bibles open, turn with me to Proverbs 23. We're going to read a little bit of a longer section from 23. You can also follow along on the screen. 23, verses 19 through 28. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them in rags. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Do you see what's happening in this interplay in this text here? The father is pleading with the son to listen to his instruction so that he'll know the path of life and so he'll know the path of death. God is so kind to us to actually tell us, this will kill you. This will take your life away from you. And it's a warning not just against a physical death, but a living death here on earth in consequences, effects, and ultimately judgment against sin. In this proverb, God is pleading with us to train our ears by listening to him. That's what we saw in verses 19 and 22. The priority for the son is not just to avoid the snares, but to have ears trained to the father's instructions so he can rightly identify where death is lurking, where wickedness dwells. We listen to the voice of God. We train our ears to his word. And isn't that what we saw in John 10 when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. Oh, beloved, do you hear the security and the sound of the shepherd's voice? He speaks, we listen, 
because we know there is no security in the promises of the world. But there is security in our good shepherd who gives life that cannot be taken away. Even when we perish here, we awake with him. We train our ears to hear our shepherd and to listen to him, to drown out the voices of the world that would entice us to death. Beloved, hear me. Folly is not your friend. And the promises that sin makes are empty. Don't listen to them. Train your ears to the voice of God through his word and through his people that you may avoid the path of death, and walk the path of life. So first, we train our ears to avoid death, and secondly, we trust the Lord. It's like we hit this every week, isn't it? We're going to hit it next week, just spoiler alert. The truth lies at the heart of the book. This is what God wants us to know, to grasp as we seek to grow in our skill of of godly living. You will not increase in wisdom apart from trusting God. Hear that. You will not increase in wisdom apart from trusting God. You will not find life or avoid death apart from trusting the Lord. And it's stated so vividly in Proverbs. Let me give you two examples. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Do you see what's at the heart of the fool here? It's the trust of self. This path seems right to me. It feels good. I want it. I should take it. It's so reminiscent of the garden, isn't it? This fruit is pleasing to the eyes. Looks good to eat. Remember what we read in Genesis 3, 6? And that the tree was desired to make one wise? Sin parades as wisdom. And when we are trusting only what we see, what we know, and what we believe is best in our own hearts, we are in danger of embracing death. The wisdom of Proverbs is to abandon trusting in ourselves and to give our hearts allegiance allegiance exclusively to the Lord who made us, who loves us so much that he sent his own son to embrace the death that we deserve, that we might have unending life with him in heaven. Every one of us is trying to find life and avoid death. Most of this time, this looks weirdly like fitness routines, diets, and doctor's visits, and yet each one of us is placing an even greater expectation for life somewhere. Our hope, our trust, our very souls are resting on something or someone. And if it's anyone else than God, your idol will not bear the weight of your soul. But the Lord Jesus can. The Lord Jesus can. I mean, you see, the invitation in Proverbs is the same invitation we hear through the Lord Jesus. Come to me and I'll give you life. So friend, have you turned to Christ? Have you looked at all the things that you've tried to, to find life in and realize that none of them are actually succeeding? None of them are giving you life. But there's a Savior who can and who does. 
Jesus, who bore our sins in his death on the cross, our king who did not avoid death, but marched unflinching to his death for his people, the savior, redeemer, friend, and pursuer of our souls, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus does not invite us to come to him with a scowl, but with a smile and arms ready to embrace us, to wipe away our tears, to remove the stain of sin and death, and to cleanse us by his blood, to give us the life that we so desperately need and we don't even even realize so often that we want. Beloved church, this is our hope, that we have life guaranteed by our risen Savior, who though he died, did not remain dead, but rose and promised us, you'll rise too. There's no death that can stop the resurrection power of Jesus, which each of us will know one day when we rise with him. Isn't this our story now? We all were once dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're made alive in Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly places, and we await a day when all the dead in Christ will rise, where death ends fully, finally, forever. How do we avoid death? We run to Jesus, our living Savior, who can never die again and promises that we will live with him. The one who rescued us from death and gave us new life here and now and will grant us life with him forever. I was reminded of a song this morning that captures our promised life, but the tension we feel living in a world where death encroaches and even feeling the death inside us. Lord, I'm crooked from head to toe, got dirty hands and a dirty soul. I was lost, but now I'm found. Ain't no grave going to hold me down. I will rise. I will rise. Troubles come for everyone. Death has no respect for love. Roll that stone. I won't be found. Ain't no grave going to hold me down. This is the song of saints who see the death around us, but we don't give in to it. We trust in God and the life that he gives, and we rest in his redeeming love. This is what we celebrate each week in the Lord's Supper. We take the bread, we take the cup to remember death that actually bought us life. We celebrate a Savior who embraced death in order to give us life that can never be taken from us. When we take the supper, we find life, and we avoid death. Not through the elements. There's no magic in the bread and the cup here but through remembering and proclaiming our trust in Jesus, the one who died and rose again and gives sinners life, sinners like you and me, life in him.